You're listening to Season 5 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans. We analyze all 42 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 5.8, War in the Podcast, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and here we are, looking back at another season of the podcast in the rearview mirror. And I'm Nina, another Gundam entry down, many dozens left to go. Oh, did you look at the watch list? I looked at the watch list. Inadvisable. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 619 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Trucy True, Scott McA, and John D. This podcast would not be possible without your support. If you're excited for future seasons of Mobile Suit Breakdown, you should know that we are entirely listener-supported. Help us make it to your favorite Gundam series by subscribing to our Patreon at GundamPodcast.com Patreon. This week, we'll be looking back on 0080 as a whole and tying off some loose ends. Plus, we've got listener questions to answer, more research to cover, and news about our hiatus, as well as the upcoming Season 6. News first. Starting next week, we will be on hiatus for three weeks as we prep for the start of Season 6. This upcoming season will cover the SD Gundam OVAs that Sunrise produced from June 25th, 1989 until March 21st, 1991, from SD Gundam Mark II and SD Gundam's Counterattack, which were released contemporaneously with War in the Pocket, through to the end of the SD Gundam Gaiden miniseries, the last episode of which was released one week after Gundam F91 arrived in theaters. We will also be covering the mysterious Doozy Bots as part of Season 6. However, we will not be covering Mobile Suit SD Gundam The Movie Warrior Knight Command SD Gundam Scramble in Season 6, because although it falls within the right time frame, it aired as a theatrical short alongside F91, and so we'll be watching it when we start Season 7. As part of our wrap-up of Gundam 0080 War in the Pocket, in addition to talking about a couple of topics we didn't get a chance to discuss last week, we solicited questions from you, our listeners, about the series, about our process, whatever, and quite a few of you wrote in. So without further ado, here are some of the questions we received. Jeremy O asks if we could do some research on the Alex's Chobum armor. Chobum? Chobum? Chobham? That's the sort of question we could answer if we did some research on it, which we might do, but not this week. We have a lot of research questions from 0080 that are still hanging over us, uh, and we are thinking that we're going to do a series of bonus episodes, either during the Between Seasons hiatus or afterwards, in which we will get a chance to dig into some of those lingering questions. So look forward to those, Jeremy O. Austin B. writes, What do you imagine Al's life is like after this? Are his personal connections ruined forever? Does he completely block it out subconsciously? 
Would he ever be able to tell anybody about this experience in confidence? Would he become the type of person to consider opposing the Titans six years later, or do you imagine him seeking stability? This relates to one of the questions submitted by Jetset Starfall, who asked, This might be spoiler territory, but is there any information about what Al or Chris or anyone does after the series, canon or otherwise? In the absence of any actual information, what do you think the future holds for Al and Chris? It seems pretty clear at the end of the series that Al's relationships have changed. I don't think they're ruined, though. Yeah, Al seems to have a very strong support network, which is super important when you're dealing with this kind of trauma, especially as a child. There are a lot of unknowns in Al's future, and a lot of turning points. He could get better, he could get worse, I and mean, he'll always be marked by this, but it doesn't necessarily need to define the rest of his life. It doesn't even necessarily preclude him from staying friends with Che and Telcott. Mm -hmm. I don't think he is angry at them for the way that they view things, or unsympathetic even to their views, even though he can't really share them anymore. Although, I'll bet you anything that he's going to spend the rest of his life having issues controlling his anger. I think there's enough room here that you can imagine almost any kind of future for Al, from the darkest and most depressing to the, uh, the happiest and most restorative and healing. As far as I'm aware, Gundam Cannon hasn't done much to fill in that gap. For Al specifically, there is a short manga, just like six pages or something, that was published fairly recently, which shows Al about a year after the events of 0080. Uh, it's written by a different person, its canonical status is up for debate, but in it, Al skips out of cleaning the classroom duty to go into the woods and visit Steiner's grave, and Dorothy chases him down, finds him there, they kind of have a moment together, uh, and later Al talks about how much he wants to go and visit the earth, go and see all the wonders of nature, rather than the sort of very predictable man-made environment of the colony. But that's about it. There are some cameo appearances in later Gundams that are possibly intended to refer to these characters. There's, there's a redhead who shows up in another show in the background later who may or may not be Chris. So yeah, they, they really left these characters in the mist, so to speak. In terms of Al being able to tell anyone about this, I would say that unless he leaves this particular colony... He might not ever feel comfortable telling someone everything. He could maybe talk a bit about, oh, there were Xeon soldiers here undercover, and I, I met them, and I knew them and helped them hide and stuff. But the full details, too many local people died, and to be complicit in that, even if he reveals, oh, but they were going to nuke the colony because, you know, like... Mm -hmm. It's too direct and too many people are connected to people who died to talk about it unless he goes someplace where he's talking to people who weren't directly affected. Yeah. And if you look at history in the wake of World War II, for instance, in France, people who were known or suspected to have collaborated with the occupying regime or with the Vichy government were not treated well, to put it mildly. I could imagine a scenario where a decade from now, Al is going to college on a different colony and he finds somebody that he trusts enough to tell this story to. But then again, maybe not. 
When the show wrapped, I asked Tom to help me plot out how old Al would be at the time of Zeta and Double Zeta, and he would be about 18, 19. I don't picture him getting involved as a soldier. I picture him leading demonstrations against the Titans. <laughs> I picture him as this fairly politically engaged and active college student. Tom talked about him possibly becoming a photojournalist, since he clearly likes taking photographs and going in places where he's not supposed to be. I could also see him doing, like, civil engineering. He's so interested in how the colony's infrastructure functions. On the journalism bent, we know from Zeta that there are underground newspapers. I can imagine Al getting involved in something like that. Maybe he has an internship with Kaishiden. Uh, as for Chris, I kind of picture her as a, a bright or an emery, but less important. <laughs> Another possibility we floated when we were talking about her future was that since she would feel conflicted about staying involved in the Federation when the Titans start taking all this action against the colonies, maybe she works for Anaheim. Maybe once she finishes whatever contract she's under with the Federation, she takes a private industry job. And I could see that happening earlier. There was a big demilitarization effort in the Federation after the one-year war. So there may not have been a job for her as a test pilot for experimental mobile suits. She may have transferred over to a cushy private sector job at Anaheim uh, as early as, you know, 82 or 83. You know who Al probably could tell this whole story to? Somebody who would get it? Kai. <laughs> After his experiences with Miharu, Kai would get it. Oh, absolutely. But the chances of him meeting Kai <laughs> seem pretty low. I just told you he got an internship. <laughs> All right, Bandai, you heard it here first. Idea <laughs> for a new manga series. Al interns with Kai Shiden. There's a manga series that's running right now about Kika becoming a journalist. Ah. I think it's called like MS Pulitzer or something. Um, and it's about <laughs> Kika going around. It's, it's in the wake of Shar's counterattack. And it's about Kika going around and interviewing all the people she knew from the white base. Well, she's got those connections. That's how you make it in journalism. Stephen B. wants to know... Do we think Bernie was drafted or did he volunteer and does it make a difference in interpreting his character? I assumed that he was drafted because I assume Xeon has the draft. And we know that they have much less population to work with in the Federation. They need everybody they can get. I'm not sure it makes a huge difference to me just because... With propaganda and, and with the kinds of things that get told to young men about being a soldier, he could have volunteered, but under some pretty gross misapprehensions. Yeah. There are so many different pressures that might induce somebody to join the army. Like the draft is a legal pressure. If you refuse, you go to jail. But social pressure can be equally strong. If the whole nation is on a war footing and all of your friends are joining up and everyone expects you to join the army... You may not feel like you have much of a choice. Wasn't that a particular thing during World War I? And people would give white feathers to young men who looked like they were of an age to be soldiers, but were still at home. And it was an indication that people thought you were a coward. I have not heard that, but I believe it. In my analysis, it doesn't really matter why Bernie joined up. 
I mean, there are reasons he could have joined up that would change my opinion of him, but we don't have any reason to think that Bernie joined up just because he wanted to kill people or anything like that. That's, there's nothing in the text to suggest that. It does occur to me that Bernie's sympathy with Al, the connection between the two of them, could indicate that Bernie used to think of soldiers the way that Al very clearly thinks of him, which would indicate that he probably volunteered because he wanted to be, you know, a big darn hero, and then came to a very rude awakening once he was actually involved. As I'm sure happens to many soldiers in the real world. Brandel E. asks... I get that it was possible for Bernie to escape to Francesca when the Cyclops team hit their first mode of mission failure, but how likely would it have been for him to get away with abandoning his unit, given he's seeking refuge in Federation-controlled territories? What generally happens to soldiers who simply outlive their units? Does being the last man standing change anything about that? And how long would it be before a group like the Titans or the Manhunters caught up with him? Uh... (laughs) In general, I assume soldiers who outlive their units simply get reassigned to other units, assuming they can get to some sort of point of communication or gathering point where that can happen. (laughs) However, this is the world of 1989. There's very little, very sporadic and very inefficient communication between all of these places. If Bernie really wanted to disappear, I bet it's easy. Yeah, it's um, it's not even entirely clear what Bernie's goal here is. He may be trying to get to a different neutral colony where it'll be easier for him to sneak back into the principality, assuming the war continues going, or he might be trying to ride it out until the war is over and just survive. And in actual history, after a commando mission, which is invariably deep inside enemy territory, succeed or fail, Typically, a bunch of the commandos are going to get separated from their units, and they are going to either get caught or make their way home the long way via some neutral country. This is very normal. But I'd say if there's one thing we've learned from watching all of the Tomino shows and movies that preceded this series, it's that it is the easiest thing in the world to disappear in the Universal Century. Even if you are high-profile Shar Aznabal, you can disappear over and over again. You can just give yourself a ridiculous name and no one will question it. So for somebody like Bernie to just disappear into Francesca, I think it would be super easy and I don't think the Titans or the Manhunters would ever go looking for him. Kurokona wrote in with one question and one request. Are you familiar with other podcasts with similar approaches to yours? I'm constantly wishing that I knew one that's like MSB, but for Evangelion or Shingeki no Kyojin, which is Attack on Titan. But are there good ones that take similar approaches to different kinds of pop culture texts? Unfortunately, we don't listen to that many podcasts now that we make one. Uh, I'm not aware of any that take our approach to anime in particular. I'm not aware of any that take this approach to anything. There may very well be, but I don't know about them, unfortunately. I wish I could answer this question. I think the real issue is it would be very hard to do the kind of research that we do unless you were doing this as your job. And frankly, very, very, very few podcasters are doing it as their job. If we both had full-time jobs plus the podcast... One, we would have given it up ages ago because we'd, <laughs> we'd be too tired. Yeah, yeah. Um, and two, 
we could maybe release an episode a month. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Happily, we have a more positive response to your request, which was, please have Mateo on more future seasons. I've absolutely loved his contributions to the show so far. We also love having Mateo contribute to the show, and I think he enjoyed it too, because he is already preparing for a next time. <laughs> Calder has a few questions for us. Will you touch upon the ad for War in the Pocket Blu-ray collection that featured Al's voice actor, Namikawa Daisuke, playing Al as an adult? And he sent us a link for it. My immediate reaction was that we haven't really been covering ads because it's outside the scope of our project, and also that such an advertisement is not, uh, we're not there in the timeline yet. We're still in 1989. But I did pitch Nina on maybe doing a bonus episode covering sort of all of the other stuff that's on the disc, all of the bonuses and extras, the music videos and things like that. So we'll see about maybe turning that into a bonus. There's certainly a lot of interesting stuff to say about Namikawa Daisuke and his career. Uh, and so hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about it. Calder's second question was, looking back on the series, do you find any additional meaning in the opening or ending song lyrics? To start off our answer to this question, I want to read from an interview that was done with Takeyama Fumihiko, the overall director of the series, in which he was asked about the music, and he did have some comments about the opening and the ending. He said, Shina Megumi was my request. I'm a fan of her clear voice. As far as the lyrics went, I wanted the opening to be about a boy who had been entrusted with the future's hope, a cheerful song. The ending was to be like an adult looking back on their childhood with a twinge of regret. The closest song I had in mind was Bruce Springsteen's My Hometown. As far as lyrics went, I gave Hasegawa Ryusei's A City Called Churchill as reference material. I can definitely see what he means in especially the beginning song. When I think about that opening lyric, can't you see that you are sweet, let me love you so. After having watched the whole show, I think of Al's hero worship of Bernie. And there are also lines like, I want to slip away from this artificial world and make myself free, that really do sound like Al in those early episodes, desiring to escape from his situation, to go out into space and be free. There's also a line about like, I believe I can become the wind someday, which feels bittersweet. There's a sense of hope and beauty, but also like, I don't know, that kind of feels like what happens to Bernie. He ceases to be a person and he just sort of becomes a spirit, becomes the wind. Calder goes on, will you ever elect to rewatch War in the Pocket in your own time? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it enough to watch it again. I can imagine watching it again. I am, however, the sort of person who tends to rewatch things while I'm doing other tasks. So I'll put on a series that I've watched, you know, a dozen times while I'm cooking or cleaning or sewing or, you know, doing something like that. And I can't do that with anime. <laughs> I will probably rewatch it at some point. I've watched it before and I'm sure I'll want to watch it again in the future, especially if I can find somebody to induce to watch it with me. Well, uh, funny you should mention that. Ryan C. asks, do either of us ever watch episodes with anyone else who doesn't come on the podcast, sharing episodes with friends and family and the like? And the answer is absolutely yes. I'm sure you have all experienced 
recommending something to someone and then continually not watching the thing you recommended. And sometimes it does feel like the only way to get someone to watch or listen to something you recommend is to watch it with them. I've absolutely done this with my family, in particular with my dad, even when I'm not trying to get him to come back on the podcast because we enjoy watching movies together and talking about them. Yeah, I've found it's actually really effective when there's something that you want a person to watch and they just are not watching it. Actually, the best technique is to get them to start a podcast with you where you watch the thing. <laughs> Calder's final question is, Al's classmate Dorothy plays a relatively minor role in the series. What were your reasons for including her on this season's podcast splash art? I mean, of course, I know exactly why I did it. Nina, why do you think I did it? I absolutely thought Dorothy was going to be a bigger part of the series based on the opening and the first episode. And then she doesn't get much screen time. However, I think she is extremely important in the show. From the beginning, she provides this counterpoint to the sort of war mania of the boys and their obsession with these trophies and souvenirs. She's one of the only people in the show who notices Al's feelings and tries to help multiple times. When he suddenly finds that the uh, tide of public opinion has turned against Zeon and he's getting picked on by his friends, she doesn't join the argument. She just tries to get the others to leave him alone and to do so in a, a fairly subtle way. It's not that she's defending Al. She's just like, hey, class is starting. She's the one who goes to try and get the teacher to help when Al is crying in the assembly at the end. These aren't necessarily the most effective ways to help, but she is trying, and she does notice that he's in distress. Does any of that align with why you included her in the, <laughs> the cover art for um, the season? Yeah, I, th I think she is, she is a more important presence in the story than just her screen time would suggest. She's there at the very beginning, she's there at the very end, um, and she does create the inciting incident that brings Al into contact with the Alex and the Xeon Commandos and the whole thing. In creating the cover art for the season, I wanted to create a sense of claustrophobia and of external pressure weighing down on Al, Bernie, and also Chris. Uh, and to do that, I created this sort of symmetrical design with flanking elements, the Alex and the Kempfer, Captain Steiner and Dorothy sort of looming over our major characters. And while there are other pressures in Al's life, his mom and his teacher, they are much more disengaged from him. They are not really involved in the story in the same way, and they're not depicted visually in the same kind of imperious, looming fashion that Dorothy is in a couple of scenes. And so she felt like the best counterpoint to Steiner for that uh, image. But hey, the author is dead, so feel free to come up with your own explanations for why I did that. We now get to the remaining of Jet Set Starfall's questions. Do you think there is a reason this series omits new types as part of the story? Do you think it was a conscious choice by the creators, or was there an external influence to not feature the concept? I absolutely think it was on purpose by the creators, and it is a better story of its kind for doing so. I don't know if you, Jet Set Starfall, had listened to our most recent episode before you wrote in the question, but 
one of the things that I found very powerful about this series was the fact that the characters are not big heroes doing huge influential things that change the course of the war. They're everyday people doing things that ultimately don't affect anything at all except for their immediate environment. And you lose that with new types. The minute you make somebody a new type, they're a big darn important person, hero, <laughs> or villain. And you lose that sense of realism that this show does so much to build. Including new types would have been entirely counterproductive to the vibes and the message of this show. I do think there were also external pressures, though. I think the people making this show were very aware that they were making the first Gundam without Tomino. And I suspect there was a sense of not wanting to step on his toes, not wanting to intrude into the hallowed realms of Tomino Gundam. And in the Gundam that we've watched so far, the whole new type phenomenon is presented so esoterically and vaguely, the boundaries of what new types can do or can't do, what it looks like, what it sounds like, all those kinds of things are so unclear, undefined. If I were making a Gundam series in 1989, I would say that Tomino is probably the only person who understands what a new type is, if anybody does. And I wouldn't feel comfortable trying to include them in my story because I don't understand them at all. Same listener also asks, there's a lot of discussion on the classic Xeon Nazi influences, but what about the Earth Federation? Are there any specific influences to their mobile suits and uniforms? I'm going to talk about this in a little more detail and depth in the research section for this episode, so stay tuned for that. But uh, it's about what you would expect. Their uniforms and gear and mobile suits seem to be consciously trying to evoke a sense of American and British and Frenchness. Panettiere asks, I'd be interested to hear both of your thoughts on the OVA format. How well does it suit Gundam, its stories, and how does that compare with the movie and broadcast television format? It's real good. I mean, we have a small sample size at this point, right? We've only got the one OVA, I guess two if you count uh, SD Gundam. But they've made one OVA and it was great. They made three TV shows and they were, you know, hit or miss. And the movie, while I love it, is, uh, you know, it's got some issues. I think most people watching it would say that the movie format is not the best one for that story. Fundamentally, it comes down to what kind of story you're trying to tell. My sense is that OVAs have the least external pressure affecting the story itself, in that for broadcast TV, you know, whoever is uh, bankrolling this project, if it's doing well, they want it to go on forever. <laughs> uh, and so there's this strong incentive to add filler, to add weird twists, to extend the story in ways that don't necessarily make sense. And a writing team can make that work and can still make it good. But in terms of telling the story you want to tell without having to cut anything important or add anything irrelevant, OVAs seem like the sweet spot because of that control that I talked about in the research piece with them, that they are exactly as long as you think they need to be. OVAs might end up being as long as a show on broadcast or as short as a film, but the length shapes to the story, not the other way around. My understanding is that with films, the big, big, big pressure is time. 
think once you set the release date for the film and you get all of the stakeholders on board, you get the theaters involved, you get the ads made, you buy the ad slots on TV. Like once you have set a date for the film to come out, it really has to come out on that date. And it has to be a extreme circumstance to justify a delay in the movie, whether the movie is ready or not. I recently learned that when, for instance, Akira, which of course is a gorgeous, beautifully animated, famously good-looking movie, first came out in theaters, it was riddled with mistakes, errors that had to be fixed later before the home video release. And I've recently learned that that was also the case with an upcoming Gundam movie, so like, there are definitely significant external pressures for movies that don't exist for OVAs. So I, I would agree with Nina, it seems to be the format that gives you the most freedom and the most control. Panettiere also asks, I'm curious how 0080 was received at the time by fans, by the general public, and how Sunrise responded to that. That might be a start of season six kind of topic instead? Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> or perhaps later. I've heard a couple of tantalizing hints that may justify talking about this at the beginning of season seven after we've covered a bunch of the SD stuff. Ian B. wrote in, Would you be able to rank all Gundam series you've seen so far? If not, what is your personal favorite outside of the podcast? Oof. <laughs> if I were put on the spot and had to rank what we've covered so far, I would say First Gundam, War in the Pocket. Zeta and Double Zeta is really difficult for me to choose between them. I liked the beginning of Double Zeta way more than I liked the beginning of Zeta, but Zeta grew on me and Double Zeta just like kept revealing more problems. <laughs> and they come out fairly even for me mm -hmm, in the end. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason First Gundam still beats War in the Pocket for me, because that was a difficult decision, is that I just don't think War in the Pocket would have had the impact that it had on me if I hadn't seen First Gundam before. Without that entire series of setup, it just does not have the impact. I can agree with that. I think my list would put 0080 at the top, followed by First Gundam, then Shars Counterattack, and then Zeta and Double Zeta. It's probably very telling that I forgot about Shars Counterattack entirely. <laughs> Do not wish to remember. Now, I thought Shars Counterattack was. An incredible movie. I uh, was sick of talking about it by the time we finished, but... <laughs> I know the discourse got you down. Valtteri R. wrote to ask us, How do you feel about the mobile suit and ship redesigns from First Gundam? Which one gets the biggest glow-up? Are any of the new versions worse? Does the Jim Sniper 2 having a bolt-action rifle bother you as much as it does me? I mean, it looks cool, but it just makes very little sense in the future. <laughs> I don't know enough about the mobile suits at first glance to tell that they are necessarily redesigns. A lot of times if I look at something and it looks a bit different than I remember, I assume that's just a matter of better animation quality. <laughs> like, oh, they had more time, so they made it look a little sharper and shinier and added some detail. Cool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's fair. It's hard to say which one got the best glow up. I'd say the one that was improved the least is probably the Zagok E, because the Zagok is such a good design. The Zagok is a real standout, top-notch design, even in First Gundam. And the Zagok E is, you know, fine, 
but we're talking about going from like a A minus to an A or something. Actually, maybe the biggest, this is the most obscure thing, maybe the biggest glow up is the Pazok class supply ship, which appears for exactly one scene in episode five when they're loading the nuclear missile onto the Graf Zeppelin. There's a little supply ship there that delivered the missile. And you may not even remember that the Pazok was in First Gundam, and it's just the goofiest thing. It is the, the silliest looking ship you can imagine. And the one in 0080 looks way better. It's still a goofy looking ship. It doesn't look great, but we're talking about an improvement from like a D minus to a C plus here. Big glow up. As for the specific question about the Jim Sniper 2 and the bolt action rifle, this is kind of like a lot of the ephemera on these mobile suits that doesn't make sense for a big robot. Like the biggest problem I have with the Jim Sniper 2 is the visor that drops down to give it like its sniping optics or night vision or whatever. There's no reason that there needs to be like a mechanical action for a visor to drop down over the eyes the way a person would wear night vision goggles. Like that's not a good way to design a mobile suit. And yet it's the coolest part of the whole suit. I love it. So it's dumb, yes, but it's great. My fundamental complaint about mobile suits has always been that for most of their applications, it does not make sense for them to be human shaped. And everything after that is just gravy. Like all of these other details are really just more human shaped. <laughs> uh, as for the bolt action in specific, this one actually doesn't bother me at all. Because I can easily imagine that you would want a mechanical backup mm. for how to mm -hmm. eject the, the ECAP after firing one of these rifles. Even today, there are sometimes problems with purely electronic digital controls. Sometimes you just want to have a mechanical option or backup, especially for something that's going into battle. One more question from Valtteri. Do you know if there's any truth to the claim that gets passed around online that the redesigns were originally intended to just be what those machines look like, and they were only later canonized as different variants. Ooh, so I might have been right after all. <laughs> uh, the Federation guy in the intro calling the high gogs gog types certainly doesn't help either way. The answer seems to be both, and it varies depending on mobile suit. For most of them, they were always intended to be new mobile suits. The Hygog, the Zagok-E, the Jim Sniper, or the mass production gun cannon, those are all from the beginning meant to be new. There are a couple that do seem like early on in the production process, they were intended to be just redrawings of existing mobile suits. Specifically, what we now call the Zaku Kai, the Zaku that Bernie uses, and the Jim Command. If you go back to magazines that were coming out during the production process of 0080 and that show sort of production drawings, early on, the Zaku Kai and the Jim Command are both identified simply as Zaku F, which is the standard Zaku type from First Gundam, and Jim. It wouldn't be until later still before the release of the first episode, but significantly later in the production process, that those would get their new designations as new variants. Thank you to Xeonic Scanlations who posted images of those model magazines over time, which made it possible to track the changes in the names. What's perhaps most interesting about this from a sort of 
overall series standpoint is that part of the reason why Izabuchi drew these mobile suits in the way that he did was because he wanted to create a kind of aesthetic through line from First Gundam through to the way mobile suits started to look in Zeta to connect those two parts of the Universal Century story on an aesthetic and technical level. To kick us off, I just want to say, for all that we included some research pieces in this episode and did a little bit of tangential research that is going to play a part in our discussion, we each still have, I won't say dozens, it's not that bad, but we each have a handful of research projects that we really wanted to talk about and could not get to. Each episode is packed with things that we want to look into. And we just don't have that much time. It's the downside of these shorter seasons. Uh, I think I have about a dozen on my list. I've got three. Yeah, but yours are, like, big. Eh, maybe. <laughs> We're hoping to be able to get to some of those in bonus episodes, uh, which release to our patrons, or to possibly even cover some next season, since we don't anticipate having a ton of research related to the SD shorts. But besides all of those ideas for future research, we also wanted to go back and revisit a couple of topics that we didn't get a chance to cover during our regular episode coverage or that we felt like we wanted to revisit in a little bit more depth now that we've seen the whole series. And the first and perhaps biggest of those is Christmas. That War in the Pocket is a Christmas show has become half tradition, half gag among the Gundam fan community. Uh, the holiday season is a significant presence throughout the show, but it never feels pivotal or essential. Bernie's mistake about Sydney could be true throughout the months of December and January, regardless of holidays. The balloons they used in the ambush for the Alex could have been any parade balloons. So why did the creators choose to set War in the Pocket during Christmas? In trying to answer this question, it's essential to talk about Christmas in Japan. In contemporary Japan, which is to say Japan now in the 20-teens and 2020s, Christmas is celebrated very differently than in the United States and Europe. It's less family-focused, although families with younger children do celebrate together, and more of a holiday where people spend time with their friends or especially their significant others. It's considered very romantic, and lots of couples go out for fancy meals together, buy each other gifts, and visit beautiful local illuminations. The more religious and family-oriented holidays are New Year's Eve and New Year's Day in Japan. One of my sources actually said that Christmas as romantic holiday emerged in the 1980s thanks to the bubble economy, making it so that young people had more money at their disposal for dates and gifts. <laughs> and they also placed the blame on some romantic Christmas songs, specifically Last Christmas by Wham is mentioned. We do not talk often enough about the cultural significance and influence <laughs> of Last Christmas by Wham. But it's interesting to think that Christmas as romantic holiday would have been a relatively new development circa 1989 when Gundam 0080 was coming out. 
Christmas in Japan also has specific foods associated with it, including Christmas cake, which is a layered sponge cake decorated with white frosting, whipped cream, and strawberries, similar to strawberry shortcake, and KFC, or Kentucky Fried Chicken, which uh, is a specific fast food fried chicken chain from the United States. Which does get referenced in the show. In one of the backgrounds, we get Kentucky Dried Chicken. But despite Bernie and Al eating a lot of fast food, they never eat fried chicken, and it's never presented as a Christmas meal. And while the when, how, and why of these Christmas foods is quite interesting, and both had some cultural significance at the time War in the Pocket was made, since they don't actually feature in the show, I'm not going to get into their history here. Christmas markets are very popular. Uh, although multiple sources said that now it's rare for anyone but couples to exchange gifts. One, and only one, of the sources I consulted mentioned children in Japan writing to Santa, although for Japanese children, they write to Santa in Finland, not at the North Pole, and that there are Japanese children who receive a Christmas gift from their parents, usually just one because they'll be receiving New Year's money shortly thereafter, uh, and that they sometimes receive a Christmas boot, which is like a cardboard or paper mache boot full of candy, like the Christmas stockings in the United States, and that this Christmas boot practice started in the 1960s. The only one of the things you've mentioned so far that has actually shown up in the show is the idea of a Christmas market. Because when Al runs out of the uh, department store in episode five with a bag full of burgers, there is a banner up announcing the department store is going to be holding a, a Christmas fest, a Christmas market. There are also all kinds of illuminations around Christmas time. Malls, public parks, big landmarks will all decorate themselves in beautiful light displays that people will then go visit throughout this time of year. The way Christmas is depicted in 0080, almost none of the elements that you just mentioned are present in it. It is foreign, Western, European, American Christmas. And I wonder why that is. One possibility in my mind is that with couples Christmas becoming much more popular in the 1980s, being trendy, fashionable even, perhaps removing those aspects helps to make it feel older helps to defamiliarize it, to make it feel like another place, another time. I also wonder, when it was trendy and fashionable, when it was just getting started, was there a particular set of youths who were really into doing Christmas? Was it a yuppie thing? Was it an upper-class thing? How would the emerging class of otaku have viewed romantic holiday Christmas? As I started thinking more about this and looking at other details about how Christmas is presented in the show, my sense is that it's meant to feel foreign to a Japanese audience. It's meant to feel more American or European. There's a big Christmas parade, which I've never, to my knowledge, lived somewhere that had a Christmas parade. It feels strange to me, but there are absolutely cities that have them. Also, Turns out Tokyo Disney opened in 1983, and Disney always puts on Christmas parades, including at their international locations. So there's this conscious decision on the part of the designers to make the culture of Ria less like Japanese culture. 
One of the research pieces that I wish I had time to do is a profile on the director, Takeyama Fumihiko, and looking into some of the handful of interviews he's given about this show. Uh, and in reading that stuff for background, there are a lot of references to finding foreign sources for visual inspiration, looking not just at what Japanese classrooms looked like, but looking at classrooms in foreign countries in order to create the idea of what the classrooms in Rio would look like. He talks extensively, you might even say constantly, about all of the Western movies that he referenced in making this show. So there was definitely an effort there to create an image of the universal century that is not just Japan in space. Another little oddity from how Christmas was portrayed here was the full-sized Christmas tree in Al's room, which I'm not sure about practices elsewhere, but in the United States, nobody would do that. <laughs> this is a massive Christmas tree and totally decked out. No kid would get that in his room. Most families get one tree and it goes in like a common room part of the house, the living room, you know. Growing up, I had small decorations in my room, like a wreath on my door, or at one point my mom made me a little mini tree, which was very cute, but uh, not a full-size tree. And the trees were another thing that tipped me off that this was not Japanese Christmas. A bunch of sources mentioned that families in Japan don't typically buy a tree to decorate at home. They would be seeing trees in department stores and shops and shopping malls. And it's not just shown in Al's house. I think there's one in the rubble of that house that they're pulling the dead kid from. Yes, Al there sees. is. There's like a tipped over Christmas tree. So it's indicated that this is a thing that families in Ria do. This is also the scene where the show gets religious. Al is doing what is very clearly a Christian style prayer. Uh, he's kneeling by his bed. He has his hands clasped together and he ends it with Amen. It's a pretty messed up prayer, though. Like, this kid talks about killing frogs for fun, which I, I, I don't know if that was a thing that kids did commonly in the 80s, but... While I agree that it's horrifying, I've definitely read a lot of stories in which young boys burn up ants with magnifying glasses or tie firecrackers to the tails of cats or Ugh. do other like animal torture-y stuff. So I get the impression that kind of behavior used to be more common, but uh, yeah, it's awful. Also basically promising, I will never be bad ever again if you save us, which is another you know very childlike way to engage with God and the idea of God. He's just trying to make a deal with God. He didn't even have to run up a hill to do it. I'm just going to leave that. <laughs> I didn't check historical data, but as of 2018, just 1.5% of Japanese people were Christian. The first Christmas celebrations in Japan are thought to have happened shortly after Catholic missionaries came over in 1549, but then Christianity was banned. Christians were sort of driven to practice in secret, and Christmas celebrations went away until the Meiji Restoration. And Al is supposed to be at least part Japanese. Alfred is not a Japanese name, but his mother is named Michiko. And his last name, Izaruha, like, 
I don't think that that's an actual Japanese surname, but it it's close enough. It could be. So to return to the the meat of the question and why they might choose this time of year, I don't think that it ties to the Christian significance of the holiday. They don't bring up the religious aspect except in our praying. But I do think that it is meant to kind of form a contrast that this is a time of year that's meant to be full of family and celebration and joy and togetherness and instead is full of heartbreak and violence. I agree with that. When you think about the ways Christmas is leveraged in the show, it is a focus on the pageantry and the celebration. We get a Christmas parade. We see all of those balloons with Frosty the Snowman and Santa Claus. It is about celebration. It's about happiness and normalcy in this neutral colony that has mostly been unaffected by the war. And then it is interrupted. We see the destroyed tree in the destroyed house. We see Santa Claus and Frosty the Snowman balloons get destroyed in the final combat. Bernie gazes longingly at Chris's house and either sees or imagines her with her family. And as a family holiday, it casts into stark relief the problems in Al's natal family, that Al's parents are split up through most of the movie, that it seems as though they're going to get divorced. When his mom tells him that there's news, he assumes that it means things have gotten worse, which is contrasted against this pseudo family that Al puts together with Bernie as his big brother, Chris as an older sister figure, the whole team of the commandos as his weird uncles. And then in the final episode, we get the simultaneous restoration of his birth family and the dissolution of the one that he has created for himself, almost as if one is the price for the other. When we were talking about Christmas just a moment ago, I mentioned that the director is a total cinephile, and when he talks about the influences on War in the Pocket, he's constantly talking about foreign movies. It's also been said by a bunch of people who were involved in the production, including by Mikimoto, the character designer, that a lot of these character designs started with movie stills or photographs of actors. Uh, and some of those we know, but a lot of them we're just sort of speculating about. When I saw Garcia with his bandana tied around his forehead, I thought, hey, that kind of looks like Charlie Sheen in Platoon. Doesn't he have kind of a similar headband? So I am pretty confident that Charlie Sheen was the face inspiration for uh, Garcia. We actually sat down earlier this week and watched Platoon, which neither of us had seen before. And there are a lot of parallels thematically and between certain characters <laughs> in War in the Pocket and this Vietnam War movie. On the thematic side, I was particularly struck by a moment when Charlie Sheen's character in the movie is talking about uh, war across the generations and being of a generation whose grandfathers fought in World War One and fathers fought in World War Two, and Vietnam feeling like a sort of rite of passage, this sense that you've had generations for which war made men. 
But then all of these young men arrive to fight in Vietnam, and there's none of the sense of uh, moral justice or vindication in what they're doing. There's so much less of a feeling of we're fighting the evil and saving the world. There are no jubilant crowds when they liberate cities. And one of the other characters offers a kind of counterpoint to this where he says, you know, we, the United States, have been kicking other nations around for so long, maybe it's about time that we got ours. But it's interesting to see this evolution in looking at the one-year war because of where we are in the creator's history when we're portraying it. But first Gundam felt to us like a pretty straight World War II depiction of the one-year war. But now War in the Pocket feels like a Vietnam depiction of the one-year war. And so that change in the way war is framed and understood and depicted in real life has been compressed down uh, and applied solely to the one-year war, which is now being reinterpreted every time somebody decides to go back to it. That it's about these contemporary events and also about how the creative team relates to the events in question, that they are, because of their age, going to have a very different relationship with war. The one-year war becomes a cipher and responds to the needs and desires of the creative team in the moment. It changes every time we see it, because every show is made by different people in a different time for different reasons. And then two more little connections between War in the Pocket and Platoon before we move on. One of which being that neither of these pieces of media brings up the, like, big stated political reasons for why these conflicts are taking place, which ends up sort of creating a sense that for a lot of the rank and file, those reasons are irrelevant, particularly to their day-to-day -day life and involvement in the war. And one character tells Charlie Sheen's character, our main character, that there is no such thing as a coward out here. And that reminded me of Chris's speech, that much of people's actions aren't about cowardice or bravery, per se. We could probably watch a movie a day for a couple of weeks, <laughs> especially uh, given what you found about the, the director's interest in movies and even movies that the director explicitly states influenced the show. Uh, we sadly did not have time to do that. That was one of several <laughs> research endeavors that did not make it. But yeah, it's important to emphasize that we are not suggesting that they simply wanted to make Platoon in space. But when Takayama talks about the influences on War in the Pocket, he'll say things like, oh, the scene where Al is meeting his dad in the diner and Al crushes his cup, that was inspired by Jaws. Things like that. Right, little moments and potentially bigger thematic threads. We could also argue that the thematic stuff is not coming from Platoon, it's coming from the Vietnam War, and that's how they're both winding up in the same place. But the connection is still very strong. A few episodes ago, I had wondered about the term pocket and whether that had a specific military usage. A couple of different listeners uh, messaged us about this, and it is a military term for when part of a line gets cut off from the rest. And so 
the name is an explicit reference to how cut off this team is from the rest of their army, from the main actions of the army, both physically cut off and in terms of communication. I think that makes sense, although I'm not sure if I believe that that's the full explanation. But I do think that sense of smallness and isolation and especially desperation altogether is evoked in the title. Another thing that a few different listeners pointed out is that in the art for this show, they make frequent use of the acronym UNT SPACEY. And there were a couple of questions about what the heck is UNT SPACEY? And UNT SPACEY is used here in place of the Earth Federation or the Earth Federation Space Forces, as we would expect to see them named in uh, other shows. And the reason for this is that at this point, there was no standardized English way of writing the Federation. In the Japanese, it's Chikyu Renpo, which just means like Earth Federation. But how do you express that in English was a question that had not been definitively answered. So creators were basically left to their own devices to come up with whatever worked for them. Um, UNT Spacey in particular is almost certainly borrowed from Macross's UN Spacey. There were a bunch of people on this show who had worked on Macross and probably brought it over, including Takayama himself. Spacey is meant to fit in with army and navy uh, and other terms for an armed force that end in E. Oh, I thought it was maybe meant to be like adjectival, <laughs> like as in like space. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm pretty sure it is the space force in the mm. same way that the army is the ground force and the navy is the naval force. Gotcha. And this was printed on a lot of merchandise, uh, including Gunpla at the time. So when they eventually standardized it in the late 90s, in 98 or 99, and settled on Earth Federation, Earth Federation Space Forces, and Earth Federation Ground Forces, they had to do a bit of retconning in order to uh, justify the old UNT acronym. And I believe they went with under normal tactical, which doesn't mean anything, but whatever acronyms don't have to mean things. Especially when you're applying words to them after the fact. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just you wait. Gundam fans know what I'm talking about. Hey, um. I'm a Gundam fan. How dare you? <laughs> I'm sorry, you're right. Gundam Seed fans know what I'm talking about. And besides the UNT Spacey, we also get the UN Medical Center uh, in Rhea. So at this point, I think they're just using UN as a stand-in for Earth Federation, which makes sense. The Earth Federation is at least a spiritual successor to the United Nations, and depending on which version of the canon you're looking at, a literal one. One thing I'm kicking myself for not having mentioned back in episode four is the really striking emphasis on hands in this show. There are a lot of close-ups of people's hands, and then in episode four we get a whole depiction of mobile suit hands as well as the hands of this uh, helper robot that Dr. Lumumba is designing. And this is tied into the scene where we get a shot of Al shaking hands with the doctor, immediately cutting to a close-up on Garcia's hand as he stabs a guy to death. This is also the same scene where the doctor talks about the difference between machines made to make people happy and machines that are a necessary evil. And in my mind, this is all about how 
hands are these sort of neutral instruments which can be used to build or to destroy, to caress or to strike. And they have this immense capacity for both good and bad. When you frame it that way, I had this sudden image of the uh, the scene later when Bernie is telling Al that he's going to run. And Al is trying to convince him not to and to stay and fight. And he puts a hand against Al's face. And if this were a different kind of Gundam show, he'd have slapped Al. And instead, he just kind of, like, gives a, a nice touch to the side of his face and says goodbye. Bernie's very expressive with his hands in that scene. Besides that one, he also has a bit where he is so frustrated with himself, he balls his hand into a tight fist and he slams it into the tree. And he tears up the patch with the bug in it pretty violently. I had started noticing the close-ups on hands after a couple of episodes, and I was like, this is kind of weird. I've heard hands are really hard to draw. Why do they keep drawing all these detailed close-ups of hands? Obviously to show off. There are also, and you pointed this out to me, a bunch of shots of the downed Zaku's hand, including with rain washing over it as it seems to become part of the landscape, and when uh, a bird chooses to land on it, also when it lifts Al up. And when they're doing that montage of them putting the kempfer together, the first shot we get of it is of one of its hands, all the armor stripped away with a bright light behind it, just like rotating and doing cool robot hand stuff. The last thing I wanted to talk about as we wrap up this season covering War in the Pocket was more of an observation about myself, but is a very opportune one given Al's own development over the course of the season, which is I've noticed watching Gundam, watching related war movies, which we've done in the past and I'm certain we'll do again, I just feel it all so much more keenly than I used to. I remember watching things as a teenager in high school and in college, and sure, plenty of those movies were not as intense as Platoon. Platoon is a particularly intense movie, but lots of war films, lots of important, emotional, violent, scary films, and just not feeling it in the same way, having this kind of uh, youthful callousness that is apparently gone now. <laughs> I feel it all so much more than I used to and so much more powerfully. And this is actually the opposite of what I thought would happen. I think if you had asked young me about my emotional development over time, I would have told you that I thought I would get tougher and more callous with age. And in fact, the opposite has happened. And now Tom's research on weapons. Small, big, and very big. After we covered episode four and the Cyclops team's disastrous operation to seize or destroy the Alex, multiple listeners reached out to ask us about the exchange between Bernie and the Federation soldier about his supposed Australian origins. They wanted to know why we hadn't mentioned the other reason Bernie's comments about Sydney would have seemed suspicious in December UC-79. That's a pretty common response to this scene. 
I've seen it come up on Twitter, Reddit, and in our chat room, really wherever Gundam fans congregate and whenever people talk about this scene. To address it, I will need to break our spoilers policy just a little bit. But it also raises a bunch of other interesting and important questions about how Gundam's fragmented canon came together over the years. When you start watching Gundam in order with someone who is new to the series, one of the first things you realize is that much of what we think we know is not actually in the show. Despite depicting a colony striking a city on Earth, First Gundam contains almost no information about the colony drop. Who was responsible for it? Was it intentional or accidental? How many colonies fell to Earth? Where did they land? How much damage did they do? We started First Gundam with those questions, and we ended First Gundam with those questions still unanswered. Part of making MSB is trying to untangle the knot of continuity to better understand when these ideas were introduced and why, which ones stuck and which ones disappeared into the night. In his book Otaku, Japan's Database Animals, the literary and culture critic Azuma Hiroki talked about the desire among some fans to go beyond the text of the fiction they consumed, to create and sustain an entirely fictitious history which connected different works within a single coherent timeline. For Azuma, Gundam in the 1980s represents the prototypical example of this phenomenon. Not only were successive Gundam shows all constructed within the same universal century world and given an elaborate faux historical backstory, but the truly dedicated fan could go out and buy stacks of supplemental books filled with made-up timelines and mechanical specifications that all served to expand and make concrete the world of Gundam. The Universal Century itself became a product to be consumed. But because the Universal Century isn't real, because the events never actually happened and everything we know about it is in fact infinitely mutable according to the needs and desires of the people making it up, you can't say whether any particular detail about it is accurate except by reference to some other source. And authors working within the Universal Century may themselves feel more or less beholden to this established history. And even then, which established history should take precedence? Were sides 1, 2, 4, and 5 destroyed in the opening phases of the One-Year War, as First Gundam states? Or did they survive, recover, and thrive, as seems to be the case from Zeta onward? Is Makuve dead, killed by Amuro in the Texas colony, as shown in the first Gundam TV show, or is he alive, as shown in the first Gundam compilation movies? And that's just things that are actually shown in the anime. Once you start digging into supplemental materials, the contradictions really start to pile up. Canon, then, is a mental construct that we create which prioritizes certain sources and certain information, discarding the contradictions. It's a shared construct across communities of fans, sustained by our collective efforts and our perpetual arguments about what is or isn't true in this made-up world. It is a kind of tacit agreement between consumers and creators to maintain the illusion that the Universal Century is a real place, with a knowable history as concrete and immutable as that of our own real world. That is, in fact, a big part of the appeal of this kind of sprawling decades-long franchise. 
And it makes shows like War in the Pocket possible. We connect to kids like Al or Bernie in a fundamentally different way from how we relate to the Amaros and Camilles. Because Al and Bernie feel like real people struggling in a real world, just like us. There is a necessary anachronism to all of this. We project knowledge backward in time. And here's where I'm going to give you one spoiler. Kind of. In 2022, as I write this, it is the accepted canon that in UC-79, Xeon forces used poison gas to exterminate the population of a colony, and then they dropped it on Sydney, Australia, destroying the city and causing massive damage across the planet as debris from the colony rained down in other regions and the impact touched off seismic activity around the Pacific. But was that true in 1989, when War in the Pocket came out? The answer, and this is why what I just said is only kind of a spoiler, is no, but also yes. <laughs> Two supplemental sources, both published around the same time, offer competing narratives of the colony drop, and both come with impressive pedigrees. Between November 30th, 1979, and March 16th, 1981, a time frame that spans from the airing of the Battle of Solomon episodes of the original TV series through to just a couple of days after the release of the first compilation movie, Asahi Sonorama published a tie-in novel in three volumes. Written by series director Tomino Yoshiyuki himself, this novel retells the story of the one-year war without the input of any toymaker sponsors. There are some significant diversions. Amuro is a professional soldier instead of a civilian boy, and he has an overt physical relationship with Sela. There are fewer different mobile suits. The white base is called Pegasus instead. Perhaps the biggest and most well-known change is that in this version, Amuro gets killed in the middle of the story. Many parts of the novel then are not canon. But on the other hand, numerous innovations from the novel would be integrated into later projects including the compilation movies. In many places, the novel makes express what the TV show had merely implied or barely touched upon, like the terms of the Antarctic Treaty or the Battle of Loom, where Shar first distinguished himself and earned the nickname Red Comet. Many aspects of the one-year war narrative well known to Gundam fans, like General Revel's Xeon's exhausted speech or the G3 Gundam, come from the novel, not the show. Tomino's novel has this to say about the outbreak of the war and the colony drop. In January, UC-79, Xeon issued a formal declaration of war three seconds before its fleets launched a coordinated attack on sides 1, 2, 4, and 5. The plan was to kill the roughly 4 billion inhabitants of those sides, annihilate the Federation fleet, and force the government on Earth to capitulate. This three-second warning is, I suspect, meant to evoke the circumstances around Japan's attack on the Pearl Harbor naval base in 1941. Famously, the attack was made without a declaration of war by Japan, and during bilateral talks between Japan and the U.S. to avert war. But there is reason to believe that this was a mistake. The Japanese embassy in Washington was instructed to announce the end of the negotiations some 30 minutes before the attack began. Some have even claimed that this order to issue a 30-minute warning came from the emperor himself. It was bureaucratic bumbling, 
or perhaps intentional delays by the ministry officials who wanted to maximize the attack's chances of success that caused that announcement to be issued more than an hour after the attack instead. Per the novels, Xeon's methodology was to inject poisonous GG gas into the sealed atmospheres of the colony cylinders. Billions were killed as Xeon overran and exterminated the populations of sides 1, 2, and 4. This, too, may evoke the specter of Imperial Japan. In later essays, Tomino would talk about how his own father had been a military engineer during the war, how he had learned about the Japanese army's horrific poison gas experimentation, and how he had spent his later years deeply embittered toward the nation as a result. While the Federation fleet was able to repulse Xeon's first attack on side 5, the Principality used the opportunity to initiate the first colony drops. Their plan was to crash colonies into all of Earth's major cities until the Federation leadership surrendered. The site of the first colony drop was New York City. Even Tomino couldn't resist every science fiction author's favorite pastime, destroying New York. It is somewhat unclear in the novel whether other colonies were successfully dropped, either in the initial wave of attacks or during the month between the first attack and the Battle of Loom. The New York drop is the only one specified. Six months after the third volume of Tomino's novel hit store shelves, Minori Shobo, publishers of the anime and general youth culture magazine Out, put out one of the earliest and most influential of the Gundam supplement books, Sora Kakeru Senshitachi Gundam Senchuri, or Soaring Space Warriors Gundam Century, better known to us today as Gundam Century. Unlike Tomino's novels, Gundam Century was assembled by a team of prominent creators. Writers for the book included Nagase Tadashi, who would work on the settings for Zeta and Double Zeta, as well as Hoshiyama Hiroyuki and Matsuzaki Kanichi, both of whom had been writers for First Gundam. Between the two of them, they had written more than half of the anime's episodes. Gundam Century offers a different version of the war's opening act. Instead of focusing on the poison gas attacks, we hear about Zaku's firing nuclear warheads. The colony drop is described in more detail, and given the name it bears today, Operation British. In this version, the colony was meant to fall directly on Jaburo, but, damaged by the fighting during the operation, it broke up in the atmosphere. Fragments rained down across North America, but the main section struck Sydney, destroying the city and setting off a chain reaction of volcanoes and tsunamis throughout the Pacific Rim. Some 320 million people were killed or wounded in the first attack, but by the time the Second Order effects had run their course, the toll rose to roughly 2 billion. And what's more, it was powerful enough to change the speed of Earth's rotation. Xeon then prepared for a second colony drop, but the Federation forces launched a counterattack in the vicinity of Side 5. Xeon overcame the larger Federation force, but the victory proved Pyrrhic, they no longer had the fighting strength to execute another colony drop. Comparable, perhaps, to the Battle of Coral Sea in World War II, where the Japanese fleet destroyed more ships, but was forced to abandon their attack on Port Moresby, New Guinea, a major strategic defeat that would hurt them throughout the rest of the war. None of the Gundam anime produced before War in the Pocket would resolve the conflict between the New York and Sydney versions of the colony drop story. The makers of 080 seem to have adopted the New York version, or at least to have rejected the Sydney one, if they even knew it existed. 
This would be consistent with the handful of hints that do show up in Tomino's pre-1989 works. In First Gundam, we see a thoroughly devastated New York, and early on in Zeta, Camille mentions that using poison gas to exterminate entire colonies is the kind of thing Xeon did. There is no indication that Hong Kong was damaged or depopulated by seismic activity, as we could reasonably expect must have happened in the Sydney version. In Double Zeta, we see a colony strike Dublin, and the scale of destruction looks a lot more like what's implied in Tomino's novels, rather than the continent-reshaping, planetary-rotation-changing impact described in Gundam Century. Now even taken together, these don't amount to a conclusive, unambiguous endorsement of the New York version. But that does seem to have been the operating background assumption for as long as Tomino was running the show in the 80s. Or to quote 0080's lead director himself when asked this very question, At the time, Sydney's destruction by the falling colony had yet to be stated as canon. On the other hand, Horiguchi, our setting producer, pointed out that Xeon should have their own accent. Because of that, we picked an English-speaking zone that was known to have an accent. Australia. But in just a few years after War in the Pocket, the Sydney version would re-emerge and become the official, true history of the colony drop. Any inconvenient evidence to the contrary would just have to be reinterpreted, or ignored. Okay, that's enough philosophizing about canon. Let's talk about cannons, and other things that go bang. The new Zaku machine gun, the Jim Cold District's machine gun, and the new Federation infantry rifle. There are other guns in this show, so, so many other guns, but these are the ones that I think I can identify right now. Going back to the first episode, both Zeon's Zaku and the Federation's Jims have traded in their first Gundam-era armaments for more modern and realistic-looking submachine guns. And in what I believe is a first for Gundam, these newly revealed weapons are closely modeled on real-world firearms. The Zaku's new weapon is called, in-universe, the MMP-80. It fires 90mm shells rather than the 120mm rounds fired by the old Zaku machine gun. Though smaller, they are still more than powerful enough to tear through a gym's armor. Designed by Izubuchi Yutaka, it was, reportedly, based on the West German-manufactured Walther MPL submachine gun. That was easy enough. Their Federation counterparts, the Cold District's gyms defending the Arctic base in Episode 1, are also carrying a new machine gun, a lightweight and fairly minimalist one, with the magazine sticking out of the left side of the gun close to the muzzle, where it could be used as a foregrip. We see a couple gyms holding them this way, but if they are anything like the real gun, then you're really not supposed to hold them that way, even if it does look cool. This magazine arrangement is somewhat unusual, but there are a few real and famous weapons that use it. The best known of them is probably the Sten gun, a British submachine gun from World War II which would fit as the model for the Jim machine gun for both aesthetic and thematic reasons. The Sten was, like the Jim, designed from the ground up for mass production at the lowest possible cost. It was cheap in both senses of the word made from only a few dozen parts, and requiring only about five hours of work per weapon. They weren't the most reliable or the most effective submachine guns in the war, but they were plentiful. They also had a reputation for injuring their users via accidental discharge, 
a reputation that might have had something to do with that cut in episode one where one of the gyms is shot to pieces by its own gun. Or maybe not, I mean, that's just a really good scene. It doesn't need a historical inspiration. And on the other hand, the Sten lacks the pistol grip seen on the gym machine gun. Some rare variants of the Sten did have a pistol grip, but those grips don't look like the ones in the show. And the standard versions of the Sten came with a stock that is missing from its Gundam counterpart. A closer match, then, may be the Sten's replacement, the Sterling submachine gun, which was adopted by the British Army in the early 1950s. Although less famous than the Sten, the Sterling also looks pretty darn close to the Jim machine gun, and unlike the Sten, it was made contemporaneously with the Walther MPL, on which the Zaku's MMP-80 was based. And as for a thematic, narrative connection, the Sterling saw action in the Suez Crisis, the Troubles in Ireland, the Falklands War, and even in the Vietnam War where it was carried by Commonwealth SAS troops. Going from one Federation gun to another, let's talk about the infantry rifle. On display most prominently in Episode 4, it is a selective fire rifle, which is to say it can fire semi or fully automatically, with the magazine located behind the trigger in what is called a bullpup configuration, instead of the conventional placement in front of the trigger. The rifle has a carrying handle which doubles as the gun's rear sight, and a partially shrouded barrel with a ventilated handguard. Or in colloquial terms, there's a bit at the front that mostly but not entirely covers the barrel, and it's got a spot for you to put your hand on the underside and holes on the top to dissipate excess heat from firing the weapon. The bullpup configuration was the biggest help in identifying this rifle's real-world counterpart, because there just aren't that many bullpup rifles out there. They have some significant technical advantages. They're smaller and lighter than equivalent conventional rifles, but they're also more complex. They do look pretty futuristic and cool, though, so sci-fi shows love them. And in the 80s, they must have seemed like the rifle of the future. Which has kind of turned out to be true. The first reliable, successful bullpup rifles saw real-world military use starting in the late 70s. Austria and France were early adopters, but their guns look nothing like the ones carried by Federation soldiers. Australia, New Zealand, and Ireland followed suit in the late 80s, but they were all using versions of the Austrian Steyr rifle, which still doesn't look anything like the Federation's. China, Colombia, Belgium, Croatia, India, Indonesia, Israel, Malaysia, Russia, Singapore, and Slovenia all use or used bullpup rifles, but they adopted them after War in the Pocket was made. So that leaves us with just one remaining contender. And fortunately, it is pretty much exactly right. In 1985, the British Army introduced their new service rifle, the SA-80, a selective fire bullpup rifle with a partially shrouded barrel with a ventilated handguard. Some versions even have that carry handle slash iron sight. A simple description doesn't really do justice to just how similar they are, though. Naturally, I'll put some pictures in the show notes. But I think the most interesting thing about the SA-80 is that it was terrible. Just a really bad rifle. Articles I found while researching it have titles like Introducing the SA-80, the worst military rifle ever. SA-80, mistake or maligned. Army rifles, what's gone wrong. And 
SA-80, The Sorry Saga of the British Bulldog's Bullpup. Problems with the SA-80 ranged from manufacturing issues like poor quality parts that wore out too easily to design problems like ergonomic issues. The magazine alone produced its own entire genre of problems. The release catch could be bumped accidentally, causing the magazine to just fall out of the gun while in use. The magazine was too fragile, and it could be bent if you gripped it too tightly. The springs in the magazine were too weak, and so although it had a theoretical 30-round capacity, it could only be loaded with 26 or 28 bullets at a time. And on top of all of that, the weapon performed abysmally in sandy conditions. But that shouldn't be an issue, right? I mean, it's not like there's that much sand in Great Britain. Now, let me just look up a list of everywhere that British soldiers have fought since the weapon entered service in 1985, and... Oh. Oh no. Oh no, this can't be right at all. Huh. Well, the flaws with the weapon became especially apparent during the Gulf War, which would lead to years of political infighting, accusations, denials, and quick-fix patches. These proved inadequate, and starting in 1998, the SA-80 rifle underwent a comprehensive revamp at a cost of a bit less than 100 million pounds. But in 1989, all of those issues were still lurking in the future. Back then, the SA-80 was a brand new, technically impressive, somewhat futuristic-looking weapon recently adopted by an army that had been closely affiliated with the Federation ever since the White Base landed in Belfast. It was a natural choice. Now, Nina's research on Hayashibara Megumi. The voice actress for Federation test pilot Chris McKenzie was the, at the time, rookie Hayashibara Megumi. She'd only been doing professional voice acting for three years, and was not particularly famous, but would go on to have a long and storied career that has continued to this day. In 2021, she released a book, The Characters Taught Me Everything, Living Life One Episode at a Time, in which she talks about her experiences in various roles and the life and career lessons she learned through her work. As preparation for writing the book, she rewatched each of the shows or movies she talks about, and although she doesn't cover every role she's ever had, she does talk about Chris. Most of the stories and information in this piece are taken from that book, with some additional background information from the usual internet sources. And a special thank you to Ryan, who gave us Hayashibara's book. Hayashibara Megumi was born in 1967 in Tokyo, Japan. She's worked as a voice actress since 1986, and in addition to voice acting for anime series and films, She's also done voice work for video games, dubbing for live-action films, radio drama, and singing, especially anime theme songs. In Japanese dubs of foreign films and series, she is the voice of Amelie, of Barbara Gordon or Batgirl in Batman the Animated Series, of Marcy in Peanuts, and many others. In video games, she's the voice of many of the Pokemon in Super Smash Bros. games. She was in Dissidia and Fire Emblem Heroes, and voiced Chris McKenzie in Garen's Greed, a game that gets talked about a lot in the Gundam fandom. She recorded songs for Love Hina, Pokemon, Slayers, Ranma Half, and the very recent descending stories Showa Genroku Rakugo Shinju. On top of her voice acting and singing roles, Hayashibara did some writing, including a manga for Anime V magazine with art by Asagi Sakura, who, it turns out, also did character design for some Gundam series. <laughs> 
I couldn't check to make sure without encountering spoilers, but they're either light novels of the Gundam series, or maybe some of them are actually Gundam What's the anime. Name again? There's Mobile Suit Gundam W Blind Target, Mobile Suit Gundam W Endless Waltz Part 1 and 2, and Mobile Suit Gundam W Frozen Teardrop. The W stands for Wing. I know I've heard of Endless Waltz, so I know Endless Waltz is an anime. Maybe it also has a light novel version. Anyway, there's another Gundam connection. This manga, though, was mostly about Hayashibara's life and career and was called Megumi Tunes. And after it finished, it was compiled into a book. And she wrote two columns for New Type magazine, one of which was translated into English for New Type USA. But all of that came later. In the 1980s, voice acting was mostly considered something unsuccessful actors did on the side to make ends meet. But Hayashibara had wanted to be a voice actress since childhood and had artistic aspirations. She believed that voice acting was fundamentally different from acting, something specialized and important in its own right. At the same time, while she was still in school, her father developed hemiplegia, or partial paralysis, and she saw her mother struggle to find work to support her family, lamenting that she didn't have any qualifications. Between all the visits to the hospital with her father, helping him with his physical therapy, and wanting to have a fallback just in case, Hayashibara decided to attend nursing school. In fact, she was still in nursing school when she got her first voice acting gig on Maison Ikoku, starting in 1986. The audition was listed in a magazine, and when she passed, she both got the job on Maison Ikoku and was accepted to a free training school. It was sometimes difficult to balance nursing schoolwork, training, and voice acting work, and a scramble to make it to evening recording sessions after class, but she was determined to do it. Promising to finish her degree and get her nurse's qualification also helped her family get over their resistance to her pursuit of voice acting. This first gig was just a couple of lines, but she completely froze. However, one of the lecturers from the training school, Chiba Shigeru, who voiced Megane in Urusei Yatsura and did narration for Fist of the North Star, was able to coach her through it, and she did well enough to be invited back as a regular cast member or regular, someone who would voice unnamed background characters. This first job was quite the learning experience for Hayashibara. Even though she was voicing nameless characters, the director would make suggestions for ways she could try the line. For a waitress part, where the only lines are welcome and thank you for waiting, he'd still ask, what feeling are you trying to convey? And suggested that she try to say the lines as if she had had a very difficult day and was grumpy and annoyed. This opened her eyes to the fact that there are no truly unimportant characters. Every line contributes to the story, and every line has context. Each character, whether we know their name or not, has a history, feelings, and inner life. As a rookie, it was her responsibility to serve tea to other cast members as they arrived before the recording began. Although we could debate what we think of this in practice, Hayashibara remembers it as a nice, low-pressure way to meet and make small talk with more senior voice actors, learning a little about them and observing how they work. In one Mezonikoku episode, she was voicing a pregnant character, and her experience as a nursing student, working with and helping pregnant women, really helped her with the role. She got compliments from the other actors. There's a Japanese idiom that translates to those who run after two hairs will catch neither. Basically, that trying to pursue two different paths or goals at once means you won't succeed at either of them. 
and Hayashibara had been considering dropping out of nursing school to focus on acting. But seeing that her experiences outside of the voice acting world could help her acting renewed her commitment to doing both, even though it meant having to turn down some jobs until she graduated. As she put it in her book, maybe the two hairs are related. Maybe chasing one leads you to the other. By finishing her nursing degree, even though she never worked as a nurse, and having a successful voice acting career, she feels as though she caught both hairs. That same year, she was cast in Castle in the Sky, also known as La Puta. At the time, recording for anime films was generally done by having all the voice actors gather at the studio at 10 a.m., then going for a full day until the work was done. You may remember that when we were talking about Char's counterattack, for budget reasons, the whole movie had to be recorded in three days. It's still wild to me. Although the two background characters Hayashibara voiced had their backs turned, so there were no lip movements to match, she was still nervous. It was her first movie role and an opportunity to observe the technique of veteran voice actors. Her description makes it sound almost balletic. There were four microphones, and anyone not currently delivering lines would sit silently in a chair until their lines came up, stand without making a sound, smoothly move around the other actors to an open mic, say their lines, holding the script and turning pages without making any paper noise, then back to their seat. Everything completely quiet and fluid. So that actually gives me some important context for a research piece I did ages ago about the voice actor who was responsible for Basque Om and I think also Daegwen Zabi because he talked about how losing his vision made it impossible for him to record voice work. And I, I could sort of understand the connection, but it was a struggle to see how your ability to see would be that important to your ability to do voice work. But now knowing a little bit more about the voice recording environment that he was experienced working in makes that make a lot more sense. Hayashibara was particularly impressed by a couple of the performances. Pazu's voice actress, Tanaka Mayumi, who is also the voice of Luffy from One Piece and Krillin from Dragon Ball, was heavily pregnant during the recording, but was still able to give an energetic and moving performance. Though Hayashibara doesn't say so explicitly, I imagine this was impressive on a couple of levels. Firstly, the physical and artistic, what the human body is capable of, and how a talented voice actor can be a pregnant adult woman, but also convincingly be Pazu, an orphan boy on an adventure. Secondly, as a working woman, seeing that it's possible to have a family and a successful voice acting career. Hayashibara would go on to get married in 1998 and have a child in 2004 and keep working. Related to this anecdote, she laments the increasing visibility of voice actors, that appearances matter so much more now, and that studios are casting more and more roles so that the voice actor is the right age and looks the right way, largely for promotional reasons, when so many of her favorite voice performances are by actors who weren't anywhere close to the age or appearance of their character. Somewhat ironically, 0080 fits exactly into the category that she is criticizing, because the voice actor who handled Al was like 12 or 13 at the time, an actual young boy. The second standout performance was that of Dola's voice actress, Hatsui Kotoe. Hatsui was mostly an actress. She had debuted in the 40s, acted in a lot of film and TV, starred in Torasan the Go-Between, 
And on the voice work side, the bulk of her jobs were Japanese dubs of American and European films. Well, in one scene, Dola rips a big chunk of ham off of a bigger piece with her teeth and talks while she's still chewing it. To get the sound right, Hatsui took a handkerchief from her bag and chewed it on one side of her mouth while delivering her lines. 1988 marked Hayashibara's first job for Sunrise as Himiko Shinobibe in the mecha anime Mashin Hiro Wataru. Apparently, at many anime auditions, voice actors are given a packet with some bare-bones character information, personality, backstory, verbal tics, and some of the character settee, or character design sheets, with full-body illustrations and close-ups of their various expressions. Himiko Shinobibe was a silly, happy-go-lucky, always-laughing, seven-year-old leader of a group of ninja. And the director gave Hayashibara free reign to have fun with it, to be loose, to be wild. But as one of the veteran voice actors gently pointed out to her, what gave her freedom to do that was working with experienced people who could roll with the ad-libbing. It's not all just happy memories of joking around with the rest of the cast, it was a lesson in the importance of trust for people to work together. Building trust in her working relationships led to other jobs. For instance, Hayashibara was hired without an audition for the NHK series Tomodachi Ipai because another actress on the show vouched for her. And you never know who you'll find yourself working with again. In April of 2020, Bandai Spirits began broadcasting a new Mashin Hiro Wataru series on YouTube, The Seven Spirits of Ryujin Maru, and the voice cast is almost identical to the original series. A happy but very unexpected reunion for the cast, who never imagined the show would get a sequel. You mentioned that importance of building trust, and it's been noted by a few people that a ton of Gundam voice actors cameoed in tiny roles before getting big ones. For instance, Judo was Gates Kappa at the end of Zeta, which people have theorized was a kind of stealth audition. 1989 was a busy year for Hayashibara, starting with the role of Alfred Jodokas Quack on the show Alfred J. Quack. Based on a Dutch theater production, this anime was an unusual co-production with West Germany, France, the Netherlands, and Japan, which Hayashibara describes as, quote, a hidden gem with an audience rating of 0.3. <laughs> as she recalls, it was competing in its time slot with the very popular Anpanman. Due to the way production schedules were arranged at the time, they got to keep making the show despite its consistently poor ratings. And although normally they would have changed voice actors for the role, switching to a man's voice once the character was an adult, they asked Hayashibara about it and she really wanted to keep voicing Alfred. The sound director agreed to let her, and so she got to voice Alfred from birth to marriage. The show tackled a lot of difficult contemporary topics. Apartheid, environmental issues, religion, discrimination, bullying. And Hayashibara mentions that she hopes it will be made available on streaming so new audiences can enjoy it. Although it never took off in Japan, a member of the Dutch part of the team told her that the show was extremely popular, beloved even, in the Netherlands. That year, Hayashibara landed her first main character role as Eri Kasuga in the anime Chimpui. Although she loved the character, she struggled with the role itself. During the first recording session, she had fun, thought it was going well, and then the director had her do tons of retakes, with instructions to be more normal, or less childish, or less like her regular voice. 
By the time it was over, she had no idea what the director wanted or what she was doing wrong. Sessions went on like this for a long time, until something clicked. She had a voice acting breakthrough. The problem was, she had been too focused on her character and her lines, not really listening to the other performers. Hayashibara makes the analogy that it was like trying to learn and practice tennis by just hitting a ball against a wall instead of learning to volley back and forth with other players. Once she learned to listen and respond to the other actors, her performance improved and she no longer had to do so many retakes. In 1989, she also worked on another Takahashi Rumiko project, Ranma Half, as Girl Ranma. This job involved its own retake hell, as she calls it, being told that one line delivery sounded too much like a boy, another too much like a girl, receiving the impossible-sounding direction to sound both manly and cute. Ultimately, she tried to combine the voice of a girl with the personality of Ranma in one performance, capturing that girl Ranma both is and isn't quite Ranma himself. But the biggest lesson she learned from Ranma Half Production was about dealing with fans. Because the show is an adaptation of a beloved manga, once the cast announcements were made, Hayashibara received a lot of hate mail. Who the hell are you? You should just quit. So-and-so should have been cast instead of you. And while the mailbag had some supportive messages too, they were outweighed. She mentions being glad that social media didn't exist at the time. She's not sure she could have handled it. Still, she was determined to do her best and not let her happiness at being cast be spoiled. Then, a few months after the show started airing, she started getting a lot of positive mail, some of it from people who admitted to sending her hate mail before. Sorry about what I wrote, I can't think of a better fit for the character. Which was frustrating in its own way. But the lesson she took away from it was, people's opinions are changing all the time. Fans will love something one day and hate it the next, or vice versa. Quote, My job isn't to worry about the fans' reactions. It's to focus on the script in front of me and to work through it with the staff and the cast to the best of my ability. From that point on, whatever happens, happens. Despite her worries and thoughts about young her, it sounds as though she handles social media just fine now. A lot of her comments about social media really resonated with me, even though what we do reaches a much smaller audience, and it probably resonates with anyone creating art and sharing it on the internet. She writes, From relatively young ages, we voice actors and actresses find ourselves hated by complete strangers, apologized to by complete strangers, and loved by complete strangers. What a weird job. Rejection and approval are fleeting and often wielded very irresponsibly. Opinions are selfish and fickle. If you are too invested in it, you'll burn out. When comments get you down, laughter is the best medicine, and Hayashibara recommends watching Ranma Half. Finally, 1989, Hayashibara was cast as Chris McKenzie in Gundam 0080 War in the Pocket. And Hayashibara credits War in the Pocket with kicking off what would be a significant trend in voice acting for anime. OVAs were often marketed and sold at big events, but at one of these for War in the Pocket, the singer for the opening song, who was slated to perform, suddenly couldn't make it. Hayashibara was asked to attend and sing the theme song as a replacement. Despite having a cold and a fever, she pushed through. Her manager reminded her this was a big opportunity for a rookie. 
The director of King Records liked her spirit and performance so much, they wrote a song for her in her role as Chris, Shooting Star at Dawn, the first recorded song of Hayashibara's professional career, and King Records would be her label for a long time. Mind you, they wrote the song and recorded her singing it without running any of this by Sunrise first, so the studio was mad, but good results by a lot of forgiveness. And Hayashibara notes that, quote, At the time, the idea that the heroine's voice actress should also sing songs for the show simply didn't exist. But her performance and recording set the stage for future anime songs to be sung by the show's voice actors. In those days, anime was still regarded as being primarily made for and marketed to children. And even someone enmeshed in the industry, like Hayashibara, considered Gundam novel for its heavy, sincere messages that were meant to challenge how adults saw the world. I particularly loved her take on Chris's response when Al asks what she would do if war broke out, so I'm going to quote that passage whole. She gently replies, I think I'd fight, without hesitating for a moment, telling him that she couldn't live with herself if she let her friends and family get killed. Even though it isn't her job to participate in actual combat, she's willing to fight if necessary. She doesn't fight because she wants to, she fights to protect others. It's a beautiful, touching decision. However, that same decision would mean taking the lives of others, and it would perpetuate the cycle of violence. Both sides would be killing so as not to be killed themselves, and it would never end until one side surrendered or was simply defeated. That decision is just as cruel as it is beautiful, and that face sears the true nature of war into the young boy's eyes. Hayashibara goes on that, When a pair of friends, or a parent and a child, or a couple, or a student and a teacher, disagree on something, is it right for one side to try to dominate the other? If one side brandishes their righteousness like a sword, they might be able to gain control over the situation, but if the other side isn't satisfied with that outcome, it doesn't solve the underlying issue. She concludes that part of the message of War in the Pocket is that being right and winning are less important than respecting each other enough to come to mutual understanding. As an aside to talking about War in the Pocket, she also talks about the massive popularity of SD Gundam at that time, and talks about auditioning for some SD Gundam CD audio dramas, which were produced as parodies and released with songs on CD format, something that I guess was fairly commonplace and popular at the time. (laughs) Inoue Yu, the voice actress for Sailor Mass, was a role model of Hayashibara's and was also auditioning. Inoue was sick, and it was affecting her voice. Hayashibara suggested holding back some on the test recording. With a sad, almost pitying expression, Inoue responded, If I hold back now, what kind of example will I be setting for my juniors? Hayashibara says she turned red, and to this day, she's deeply embarrassed to remember it. Not that everyone needs to go 100 all the time, She knows other respected industry veterans who do hold back on test recordings. But because she crossed a line, giving someone so much more experienced than herself, so much more senior, officious, and unasked-for advice. Quote, My seniors have been through thousands of recording sessions, so they understand their limits and the best way to bring out their own potential. They know their bodies, their throats, better than anyone else. That wraps the highlights from her early career. All of that in just three years. The 1990s would see Hayashibara take on some of her most famous roles. Minky Momo in Magical Princess Minky Momo, 
Young Genkai in Yu Yu Hakusho, Lena Inverse in Slayers, Rei Ayanami in Neon Genesis Evangelion, Jesse in Pokemon, who I learned is named Musashi in the original Japanese, and who Hayashibara has continued to voice since 1997. Ai Habara, or Anita Haley from Case Closed, aka Detective Conan, another role she has continued since then, and Faye Valentine in Cowboy Bebop. If you'd like to read more about the craft of voice acting, what the experience is like behind the scenes, and how it's changed over the past decades, I highly recommend her book. And while she hasn't done any Gundam roles since Chris, she is still working. So who's to say? She might crop up on the podcast again someday. Next time, we will be kicking off a new season and talking about SD Gundam. But first, a little break to prepare and to recover from the emotional ordeal that was War in the Pocket. Just be glad I never give up forever. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Nina and Tom, in scenic New York City within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. With the Omicron variant of COVID-19 currently surging in New York and around the world, I cannot in good conscience encourage you to share your wrong Gundam opinions, not even on deserted street corners. So stay home and mutter your wrong Gundam opinions to yourself or your most patient roommate, family member, pet, Gunpla model, or kitchen appliance. Maybe something like, My fundamental complaint about mobile suits has always been that for most of their applications, it does not make sense for them to be human shaped. And everything after that is just gravy. Like all of these other details are really just more human shaped. We won't hear you, but that's for the best, don't you think? Podcast girl. Gal. Gal. <laughs> That's not a speculation I've seen anywhere. That's entirely me. Oh, okay. Um, then do you, do you want to do this introduction? Yeah, then? yeah, like, I'll, yeah, I can do that. That probably makes more sense. <clears throat> so it was, rather than me being like, you said, <laughs> you can just say it. <laughs> It all served to expand and concretize and concretize and concretize the world of Gundam. Concretize is a word that works written but not said. It sounds so weird. It's a real word though. I would respond, but I would just say, yes, <laughs> me too. So I think it's better if we just end with your final comment. Okay.
Not according to that, you aren't. I mean, I don't... I care within certain tolerances, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> And Luffy, like Luffy. like Lufa, <laughs> maybe. I also wonder if maybe her family are Zeon sympathizers, hmm. based on her helping Al when that conversation turns, and that early on she is the one insisting to the rest of them that the Federation doesn't have mobile suits. Yeah, all of this discussion about what might happen to Al, maybe Dorothy joins Haman's Neo-Zeon. I should mention, since we're talking about completely different endings, that in the novel version of 0080, Bernie survives. He is badly wounded, but alive. Huh. But the decision to make them totally new mobile suits was made very early in the process. I assume for sales and marketing reasons. Because someone might already have the old version of that mobile suit. But this one, this is a different one. And don't you want to have all of the different ones? I say as I look over at Tom's backlog. And my much smaller backlog. <laughs> Thank you for that moment of self-disclosure there. <laughs> I hope Trucy True is an Ace Attorney reference. And that's it. <laughs>